Good morning. Good morning. My name is John Allen. Uh, welcome to Risen Church. And um, I got a quick Bible quiz for you. You guys ready? Right out of the gate. You guys awake? Yeah. All right, Bible quiz time. Who knows what the shortest verse in the Bible is? Jesus wept. John eleven thirty five. That's a good one, right? Jesus wept. It's like, well, that's a good one. That sounds a little sad. Um, John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. It's a powerful statement when you think about it, right? Jesus, God in the flesh, God Almighty, wept. The 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 circumstances that his friends had just lost their brother Lazarus. He's died. He was also a close friend of Jesus, um, and everybody's very upset. People he loves are, are in a pretty tough spot. And even though he knew that everything was going to be okay, Jesus knew he was going to resurrect Lazarus from the grave. He knew everything was going to be all right, but he still weeps with them. And John 11 gives us this profound insight into the love of God who sees us. A God who sees you, a creator who knows you, and who understands even what it's like to be in the midst of sorrow and pain and difficulty. A God who's not distant or detached. It's the presentation of a savior and a creator king with tears of compassion and understanding in his eyes. It's a powerful image. He's not far off. He's not disassociated. He's not detached, especially in our pain. He's not far from, he's not left you or forsaken you. He meets us where we are and he enters into our situation physically, spiritually, and emotionally. Sometimes that's a hard thing to grasp, that God emotionally relates to our situation, even though he knows it's all going to be all right. But he never, he never, say never, he never loses his identity in our darkness. He never loses his identity. See, when Jesus enters into the darkness, the darkness flees. Because Jesus is the light. When Jesus enters into death, death is defeated because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. This is a really important truth to learn, especially in our society. Jesus doesn't enter into our pain to simply wallow with us in victimization. His compassion is always connected with his mission for redemption. Always. Christ's sympathy is deeply interlocked with his victory at the cross. I love this verse in John 11 because it's, it's, it's one of those, it's short, it's straight to the point, right? And I think that's really intentional. However, the verse Jesus wept is actually not the shortest verse in the Bible. Oh, switcheroo. It is the shortest verse in the English translations. But in the original languages, it's not the shortest verse. 
It's not the shortest and most to-the-point verse in the original Greek language. That would actually be the phrase found in 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Anybody know what that one says? Rejoice always. Say rejoice. Say rejoice always. You see, even, (laughs) look, if you're supposed to, now, you see the tension here, right? Like, if you're supposed to rejoice always, does that mean that we should never be sad? And we should never mourn or grieve or weep? Like, what does this mean? That can't be true. If that were true, then the verses in John 11 or that verse in John 11 wouldn't make any sense because Jesus himself wept. And he did so on multiple occasions. But that doesn't mean he wasn't joyful, even in grief. This is a total paradigm shift. In fact, what we get in John 11 is a demonstration of the steadfast nature of the joy in Christ, which is never fading. You see, there are two forms of our English word for rejoice in the original Greek. It's often translated as rejoice in both situations, but there's actually two separate words in the original Greek language that are translated into English as rejoice, but they're not necessarily the same word. The first form of rejoice is the Greek word kairos, okay? Say kairos, and that's what we see here in 1 Thessalonians 5.16, kairos always, right? Rejoice always. It's a call to fix your eyes upon the goodness and the steadfast love of God, to trust in him and to be satisfied in him no matter what your circumstances may be, that he's good. This is the form of rejoicing that we see most throughout the New Testament scriptures, right? It's that enduring joy that comes only through relationship with Christ alone. Right? In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song, this cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought or storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ, I stand. Kairos. And you don't just stand there enduring, you stand there rejoicing. It's almost as though the joy of the Lord is your strength or something. It doesn't necessarily mean happy, right? Happy depends on your circumstances, what happens around you, right? But this kind of deep kairos joy is only contingent upon the goodness of God, which is always faithful and never changing. It's the kind of joy that comes from knowing that Christ holds the victory. And it's this kind of joy that looks forward to that victory being fully unveiled one day and revealed on earth even as it is in heaven. And so in the meantime, though, we can rest in that faithful assurance and hope for that coming day in the future because of what Christ did for us on that day in the past at the cross. This is the gospel, right? 
this literally is what Christianity is all about. This is the joy that can only come to those in Christ because those who are in Christ are those who are on the steadfast rock of salvation that came through what he did for us at the cross, that God became a man. This is the gospel. This is the good news. He came into our situation. God became a man. He lived a life we couldn't live. He died the death we deserve to die. He conquered death in the grave, and he paved the way to eternal life that starts now, not just one day when we die or even one day when he returns, but now through the filling of his spirit as we walk in this glorious truth, as we live now filled with his spirit, rejoicing in victory and leaning into Kairos as we expect to rejoice on that day when all things are fulfilled. You follow me? This is the gospel. It's knowing that he's sovereign over every circumstance that we face now, and that's what the scriptures mean when they say rejoice always, or keros always. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Let's read the whole thing here. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Right after that, pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, not just the good ones, in every single one of them. Why? Because he's got you. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That's a heavy, powerful statement. This is his will for your life. This is the call to continual joy because your attention is fixed upon God in prayer. Your heart is grateful. This is God's will for you in Christ is to recognize all of this stuff and realize that we can look to him. Isaiah 26, 3. Look at this. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Not saying this is easy, but this is the encouragement we get from Scripture. This is what we're called to. This is his will for our lives in Christ Jesus. It's not about the circumstances we face. It's about how we respond to those circumstances and who we turn to in the midst of them. Good or bad. This is the joy of Christ. This is that kairos kind of rejoicing where we're called to, to, to lean in at all times because we have this steadfast anchor for our souls in Christ. He told you, the wor this world is going to be filled with winds and waves and currents and shifting sands. He's the anchor for our souls. He's the steadfast foundation, our rock of salvation. He is our cornerstone, right? If Christ is our confession, then he is also our rock of salvation, no matter what it feels like or what it seems like in this world. Philippians 4, 4 through 7. Rejoice. Say rejoice. Kairos in the Lord always. Again, I will say kairos. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. He's at hand. I'm talking about, like, not just at hand, but when I hear that, I think of Peter walking on the water trying to get to Jesus, and, and he's like, gets distracted by the winds and the waves, and he starts to sink, and he says, Lord, save me, and Jesus reaches out his hand. Immediately, it says. Because why? He's at hand. No matter what. Not because Peter was good enough, but because he was, Jesus was faithful. Right? So let the Lord's at hand. Let your breed be reasonable, not panicked. He's with you. He's promised he'll never forsake you, right? Don't be anxious. Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, because that's reasonable. That's reasonable. 
And then, verse 7, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. James 1, 2, count it all kairos. Ha <laughs> ha, that's the word. Count it all kairos, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Jesus even used it as a greeting. Like, the English translates it as greetings when he shows up. Greetings, right? The King James is like, hail, you know. Which I'm like, what? You know, it's weird. But it's actually kairos. Rejoice. This, it's a reminder and a call to joy. That's why people used to say Godspeed or farewell. That's where it comes from. Right? Now we're just like, Hi. But this is the reminder between believers that God is good and he's sovereign and our hearts can rejoice no matter what the circumstances are because he alone holds the victory. Right? So it's important to cultivate this kind of kairos response to joy in all circumstances because this is where true strength comes from. As we said, look, when the sky is falling, when the mountains are crumbling, when everything seems to be falling apart, there's this immovability in Christ. Right? But God's good. This is that real strength. This is, this is what I'm talking about in this. This is that kairos, and we need to cultivate this. This is the first and most common form of rejoice in the Greek. And it actually shows up in the New Testament 77 times. And no, I don't think that that's a coincidental number, because God is just that big. Seven is a very significant number in the New Testament. We've talked about that before. I don't have time to get into it. But this is the point. This is who you're called and equipped to be. A Kairos people. Rejoicing in all things. You might say, well, that's not me. You know, I'm really easily swayed by my emotions or my circumstances. And I would say, if your confession is that of Jesus Christ being the Lord, and he's your Lord, then this is who you are. You might have a struggle, right? But this is your identity. This is who you are. Do not own that other attitude. Do not own that identity. That is not who you are. And if you are saying that it is who you are, and it's not just a struggle, what you're saying is you are basing your identity in your own self-confidence. Stop it. He is who we are confident in. This is God's will for your life in Christ Jesus. Take heart, take joy, take courage, rejoice. Jesus has overcome the world, and he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Again, it's not about self-confidence. It's about God confidence. I got no confidence in myself. If I did, I'd be totally anxious all the time and insecure, and there are moments where that wave hits me, and I have to cry out, Lord, save me then my reasonableness kicks in. The Lord is at hand. Now, this is that kairos joy, that deep, steadfast, unfading joy. It's almost like a calm delight. Right? So it's not like, rejoice! It's like, rejoice. Right? The second form of rejoice, though, is the Greek form or the Greek word euphreno. Think euphoric. Okay? 
It literally is the call to celebrate, to dance. Like, there's nothing calm and collected about this, okay? Like, it literally means to set your heart and mind in the right frame or mindset and to celebrate because it's good. And for believers, it's always in direct response to the glory and the goodness and the salvation of the Lord. Like, it's, this is what God has just done. This is who he is. Let's party. Euphrano. Right? We see this. But for the rest of the world, though, we see that Euphrano is used in description of the way that they respond. And the only way that it's used in Scripture is only to describe their response to the works of their own hands. So believers always euphreno in response to God's goodness and glory. Unbelievers always euphreno in response to their own goodness and glory. Look what I did. Look what we did. Look how great we are. That's what we see here. This is important for where we're going this morning. They don't delight in God. They only delight in themselves because they only trust in themselves, which is, of course, the source of their anxiety, their insecurity, and the cause of their ultimate destruction. That's what we're seeing here. But for those who rejoice in the Lord, trust in the Lord, have faith in the Lord, they then await what awaits them actually is victory. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. You guys are like, you're not started yet? (laughs) This morning, we're going to continue through the book of Revelation in our series called Victory Unveiled. And this morning, we're going to finish Revelation chapter 18. We're going to go 9 through 24. And for the past couple of uh, chapters, we've been presented with this vision of a woman who represents the fallen society of humanity. She's a prostitute who has been unfaithful to her true husband and seduces others to take part in her unfaithfulness so that they can glory in themselves and euphreno in themselves, rejoice in themselves, not the Lord. This is what we're being presented with. She's presented to us as the great prostitute or Babylon the Great. But she doesn't only represent one particular woman, nor only one particular city. She, remember, this is uh, like an actual vision that's given to the Apostle John in the first century. Okay? And so he writes this vision that he receives down in a letter that was sent to the early church about 2,000 years ago. And the language and spiritual imagery is packed with biblical references and contextual circumstances. And the only way that we can really understand what it means is to understand what it would have meant to them at that time. And when we understand what it would have meant to them, then we realize that this vision is just or just as relevant or even more relevant for us today as it was for them then. And it's also just as encouraging, okay? And so this revelation is a pulling back of the physical veil that reveals all that's really going on in heaven and on the earth. And so it's designed to be an encouragement to the church in the midst of very difficult circumstances. And it's a reminder to all who are in Christ that he is the true savior and the true king and the author of all creation. He's sovereign. He's got this. And he's good. That's what Revelation is about. And so it's a reminder that he holds the victory no matter what it feels like or seems like in the world around you. It's a 2,000-year-old letter that's revealing that none of what we're seeing is a surprise. And it's also not outside of the sovereign grace and mercy of a very good Savior and King. He knows what he's doing. So we're presented with this great prostitute, who's also called Babylon the Great, which represents all of humanity who's turned away from the living God and gone their own way. 
That's what we're seeing. And so in doing so, this society of seduction opposes and oppresses the gospel of Christ and the people of God throughout the generations. That's what we see. And chapter 18 is the description of her eventual judgment and destruction. She is responsible. Remember, you've got to have spiritual eyes to see this stuff and what it's talking about. This prostitute, this whore Babylon, okay, she is responsible for all the difficult circumstances that require believers to lean into that keros or that joy of the Lord. That's, she's the one that's like all of the mess in this world is because of wayward prostitution. And I don't mean literal only. I'm talking about that, that she, is, she has left her, she's been unfaithful to the Lord and she goes her own way. This is the state of humanity outside of Christ. And so yet here in chapter 18, justice comes to her along with a call to believers to Euphrano. Rejoice. Celebrate at her destruction. That's interesting. That's what we're going to hone in on this morning. So we're going to read through Revelation 18, 9 through 24, describing the final and ultimate fall and judgment of Babylon the Great. And we're going to hone in on verse 20, which is a call for believers to rejoice or refrain over her. Okay? So here's what I want you to get this morning. If you get nothing else, all right? You guys with me? Here's what I want you to get. If your hope is in the Lord, then when the things of this world fade, your joy will not. So rejoice in the Lord, not in the things of this world. If your hope is in the Lord, then when the things of this world fade, notice I said when, not if, when the things of this world fade, your joy will not. So rejoice in the Lord, not in the things of of this world. Because if you don't rejoice in the Lord now, you're not going to rejoice in the Lord then. In the first part of chapter 18, we heard the declaration of Babylon's judgment and the call for God's people to be set apart from her or to come out of her. And the vision then continues here as she continues in this sort of arrogant hostility against God and his people. Okay? So Revelation 18, verse 9 through 24. Here we go. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her, being the great prostitute, will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. So it's important to remember that the idea of sexual immorality here isn't limited to just literal sexual immorality. Of course, literal sexual immorality would be in view here, definitely part of it, but this implies spiritual idolatry. Okay? In other words, an idol is defined as anything that you desire more than you desire God. Anything or anyone that you turn to for your identity or your affirmation or your salvation other than God. That is what an idol is. It's your functional savior. It's what you actually worship. Okay? That's an idol. It could be your career. It could be your social status. It could be your success. It could be your sensuality or your comfort. Right? It could be your control, power, prestige, affluence, all kinds of things. It could be your bank account. That's where your security lies, right? It's anything that you look to as your functional savior. That thing is also your God, right? 
It's worshiping the created rather than the creator and trusting in him. It's trusting, instead of trusting in him, it's trusting in yourself or humanity. It's basically the Tower of Babel, trying to be God or reach God on your own. And it's all false religion that presents salvation as a result of something people can or have done. Good works. Look how good I am. I deserve heaven. That's not how, that's, that's not, that's not Christianity. Like, like, in other words, it's all false religion that says if you're good enough, then you can be saved. The truth is that it's all false religion that says if you're good enough, then you can be saved. The truth is that they believe that if they're good enough, then they can boast and glory in themselves. The one who thinks they're good enough to get into heaven stands before God and says, ha ha, look at me. It's a bad idea. Right? Because when you stand before the Lord, you don't hand him a resume. You must point to Jesus and say thank you. Does that make sense? Because you're not good enough, but he is on your behalf. This is the gospel. It's thankful, it's humble, and it's beautiful. Other, the, that works righteousness thing is an anti-Christian message. The true gospel is the declaration that we can do nothing to save ourselves, but Jesus has done all that's necessary through the cross. So we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And true joy in life and freedom are found through trusting in Christ alone. So these things, all these things, all, all, these, all these things that bound the hearts of these kings and the earthly leaders, um, all of them have been seduced by the worldly systems of ego and affluence. We see this at work in our, li- in our lives today, right? Like they bought into the lie that their value comes from anything other than God himself. They indulge in the lust of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. And those things brought them economic prosperity, especially in Rome. Like I'm not just talking about modern day like pop songs and culture. Right? Where they're all like doing the Lamborghini thing and it's like, hey, look how great I am. This is like my success because look, I made it. Started at the bottom. Now we're here. It's like, what is here? You've got a mansion. You've got gold around your neck. Like, what does that mean? Your life is actually a wreck. Right? See, I rhymed. Look at that. Drake's got nothing on me. Okay. (laughs) Not even in my notes. Where am I? Okay. So, (laughs) um, so again, like, this is, these are the things that brought them economic prosperity even in Rome, or I should say especially in Rome. Like, today's got, is not, remember the context of this. Economic prosperity and idolatry were tightly linked. Like you, the allegiance to the emperor and the patron gods of the trade guilds were essential for people to maintain their trade status. In other words, you literally had to worship idols in order to be involved in the trade guilds of the day. To make money, you had to sacrifice to false gods. That was the context. This is why buying and selling of goods during this time was so difficult for Christians because you often had to literally deny Christ as the only true king of kings in order to participate. That's the spirit of the age. Again, Rome was a pluralistic society, which means that they didn't mind that people worshipped Jesus, but they wouldn't tolerate anyone saying that Jesus was the only true king. Sound familiar? It should. Because that's the spirit of this age as well. Right? I'm, I'm glad that's, that's good for you. I'm glad that you found Jesus, and then that's good for you, but not, not for me. Like, I'm glad that you, that's your truth. 
What? Truth is not a subjective thing, ladies and gentlemen. Right? But this is, in that situation here, like, it would result in the poverty and potential death for people if they stood firm in Christ. Right? Not just a little ostracization. There's a word. But here, those who had ostracized and persecuted or even oppressed the gospel in the church were doing so in the name of their own economic materialistic prosperity. Now all of a sudden, all that prosperity is burning in severe judgment. That's the picture we're getting here. Not only are they hopeless because of what they had placed their hope in for security and affirmation that's burning, like they're, they're not only is, is all of the things, their God is basically on fire. But they're also petrified here. And it says they're standing back from it because their destiny is also tied with her destruction. Verse 10. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon. See this? Still, they still love it. Hearts are still tied to it. For in a single hour your judgment has come. Again, this isn't just talking about Babylon. Babylon was destroyed centuries before this. And it's not just talking about Rome either. In fact, the whole passage is a clear allusion to another city, which was the city of Tyre that was prophesied against in Ezekiel 26, verse 16 through 17, and it was destroyed hundreds of years before this. I want to read this because it's going to bring some context so you understand the references here, right? In Ezekiel 26, it says this, verse 16, Then all the princes of the sea will step down from their thrones and remove their robes and strip off their embroidered garments. They will clothe themselves with trembling. They will sit on the ground and tremble every moment and be appalled at you. And they will raise a lamentation over you, talking about the destruction of the city, and say to you, how you have perished, you who were inhabited from the seas, O city renowned, who was mighty on the sea. She and her inhabitants imposed the terror on all her inhabitants. It's talking about the city of Tyre. And the point here is that the judgment of Tyre and the judgment of Babylon and all other harlot cities is their desolation, is, is that, excuse me, is that their desolation prefigures this ultimate desolation that's going to come suddenly upon this city of man or Babylon the Great, which represents all of human society outside of the saving grace of Christ Jesus. You guys see this? You guys with me? It's a lot. It's a fire hydrant day, right? This is, I want you to lean in here. So again, you are either a citizen of the kingdom of heaven or a citizen of the kingdom of this world, either of the city of God or the city of man. That's what's being portrayed for us here. So, verse 11. Here we go. I'm going to pick it up. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses, and chariots, and slaves. That is human souls. So that's an interesting list, right? Notice these merchants aren't mourning for anything noble. Like, this isn't sympathy. This is 100% self-centered, okay? Yeah, I want you to see this. Like, they aren't feeling bad for anyone other than themselves because they're no longer 
having access to the materialism that fueled their idolatry. That's what they're upset about. They're not like sympathetic towards people who are perishing or like they're not like, oh, poor Babylon. That's not what's going on here, right? They're upset because Babylon can't fund their idolatry anymore. And so it's important to see that there's nothing wrong with trade or prosperity in itself. All right? I'm going to make that clear. There's nothing wrong with trade or prosperity in itself. In fact, many of these items that are in this list are seen throughout Scripture as very good things. And many really godly men and women throughout the Bible have prospered through trade as a noble, godly pursuit. Okay? So prosperity and wealth and and the economy of business and profit itself isn't what's being condemned here. When you take a closer look, it's clear that these items of trade have become the tools for these merchants' self-aggrandizement. Profit and greed and materialistic excess has become their security and their measure of worth. It's their God. Instead of being a God-given tool for human flourishing, as it should be, it's been twisted into a tool of human oppression and even slavery. Okay? And it's done all in the name of greed and self-reliance and pride. This isn't just a condemnation on the slave trade that's thrown in at the end of the list. When it talks about slaves there and selling the souls of men, that's not just a comment on the slave trade. Like, of course, it is, no doubt, and should have been seen so during that time period, for sure. But it's not just limited to that time period. Because even more than that, this is an unveiling of the kind of counterfeit spirit that undergirds the entire worldly system with a twisted neglect for human life. You see, the economic system of trade and commerce is in itself godly. Again, it's good. It's designed for human flourishing and healthy community. The indictment here is that the end goal of Babylon, the great's economy, is steeped in greed, profit, and self-aggrandizement for the glory of self rather than the glory of God, rather than human flourishing, which is what God is interested in. See this? Remember, this isn't just about Rome or Babylon or Tyre or some distant future society. This is about the undergirding spirit of the age in which we now live as well. Like, if you're not aware, the underlying pull in this world of the souls of humanity towards exploiting other people for the love of money and self, then you're not paying attention. It's a constant tug. That's why integrity is so rare in the marketplace and yet marketed as though it's like people's number one thing but then you pull back the veil and it's like what right like there's an electronics uh, an electronics manufacturer in China called Foxconn and it's where many of the iPhones are built by by Apple and they literally have set up nets around the outside of their buildings because mass suicide is so prevalent That's a thing. Like, that's probably a sign that the pursuit of profit has overstepped a bit, don't you think? Like, lost sight of what is really valuable. The materialism of Babylon was so thorough that without these merchants, without without it, these merchants are in total despair because that's what happens when profit and greed and materialism becomes your God. Again, here, their grief 
isn't rooted in compassion for others. It's only in their personal loss. Verse 14. The fruit of which, so it's talking about this, the fruit of which your soul longed has gone from you. And all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud, just like the kings were. Right? They also stand back, afraid that they're going to reap the same judgment and torment. This isn't repentance. This is, it's clear that their hearts are still bound to their idolatry. This is just fear of what's inevitably coming for those who were in bed with the prostitute. Right? Verse 16. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels, and with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. So again, I want you to see that, that you're going to see this again. Images of the people of Tyre would come up in these people's minds as well, by the way. Because this is especially purple. Tyre was known for purple. There was a shellfish that they were able to get a purple dye from. And so they were able to export fine linens that were purple. That was kind of like, that's why you see this a lot here. And so again, the suddenness of this destruction of all their so-called economic security is highlighted. What they thought was invincible has vanished in a moment. What they thought was secure has proven to be the most insecure keep reading verse 17 and all shipmasters and seafaring men sailors and all whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning what city was like the great city and they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned crying aloud alas alas for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth for in a single hour she has been laid waste so again, this is the same thing. We've seen the kings who are in bed with the harlot, uh, which is a reference to rulers of the world, leaders, those that are seduced by the harlot city and profiting from her corruption and exploitation. We, we've seen, so we see kings, then we saw merchants, a picture of those who profited in that twisted society of exploitation, self-glory, greed. And then now we've got sailors. That's a bit odd, right? Sailors? What's that about? Right? Especially in Virginia Beach. That kind of hits home, right? Shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all whose trade is on the sea. Yeah, that's a little, like, what's it? That, we need to know what that is, right? Is he talking about the U.S. Navy? Is about shipyards? Like, what's, what's going on here? Maybe it's pirates. Probably pirates. Like, Jack Sparrow, he was like, he had a thing for prostitutes and gold, right? Like, Pirates. Talking about pirates? Yo-ho. This is another, you got to see this. You got to interpret scripture with scripture. This is another allusion to the great coastal city of Tyre, right? This is what the prophet Ezekiel prophesied against in Ezekiel 27. Tyre was a great coastal city that actually was situated on an island right in the middle of the best trade routes of the day. It prospered as kingdoms rose and fell around it. Tyre was stable. You know why? Because they compromised. Compromised all the time. They were infamous for compromising and setting up alliances with other kingdoms. They even did it with Israel. Right? In fact, some of you may remember the Old Testament book of 1 Kings where there's a wicked queen named Jezebel who marries the Israelite king Ahab 
and seduced him into making all kinds of compromises against the Lord. Anybody know where Jezebel came from? Tyre. She was the daughter of the king of Tyre. Some of you, this is like, you need to come back and listen to this because this is some intense stuff. It's shedding a light. What's happening here is it's giving you a full picture of this, like, unfaithfulness to the Lord and a running after other gods in this world as our saviors. So while many people suffered as empire after empire swept through, Tyre was able to prosper through it all. There were this island that was able to be profitable as other people were oppressed. Profit was all that mattered to them. However, the Persian king Cyrus, the same one who would conquer Babylon around the same time as he freed the Israelites, would also conquer Tyre, and their economy would never fully recover. Ezekiel 27, 28 through 34 prophesied this, said this of Tyre, At the sound of the cry of your pilots, the countryside shakes, and down from their ships come all who handle the oar. The mariners and the pilots of the sea stand on the land and shout aloud over you and cry out bitterly. They cast dust on their heads and wallow in ashes. They make themselves bald for you and put sackcloth on their waist. And they weep over you in bitterness of soul with bitter mourning. In their wailing, they raise a lamentation for you and lament over you. Who is like Tyre? Like one destroyed in the midst of the sea. When your wares came from the seas, you satisfied many peoples. With your abundant wealth and merchandise, you enriched the kings of the earth. Now you are wrecked by the seas. In the depths of the waters, your merchandise and all your crew in your midst have sunk with you. little history nugget for you in the midst of all this is that Tyre was so decimated when Alexander the Great came through that the island literally no longer exists. This prophecy literally came through about Tyre. Look, look for it. Find, you know where Tyre is? The island of Tyre? It ain't there. You know why? Because when Alexander the Great came in to destroy or conquer it, they tried to hold out because they thought they were an island, and they're like, we got this. And Alexander the Great took his army, destroyed every building on the mainland, took the rubble from the buildings, and built a land bridge between the mainland to the island of Tyre and sacked everything. To this day, Tyre is a peninsula in Lebanon because Alexander the Great literally took out its status as an island. To this day, it is simply a modest peninsula on the coast of modern-day Lebanon. But again, the point here that I'm driving home is that Babylon the Great represents all cities and societies of people who are outside of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. It's a representation of the city of man in contrast to the city of God and the citizens of the earth um, in contrast to the citizens of heaven. The judgment and fall of Tyre was, and this is what Revelation 18 is talking about, all of that was a prophetic foreshadowing of what we're seeing here in chapter 18, which is the ultimate and final destruction of all of these societies of seduction. The Babylon the Great, it transcends the literal Babylon and literal Tyre and literal Rome and every fallen society. Okay? And so then, we got to roll. In verse 20, we see things get really crazy. So I said, this is what I want to hone in on. Because while the world is mourning and grieving the downfall of Babylon the Great, the people of God and the citizens of heaven are called to do something totally different. Verse 20. 
rejoice. Say rejoice. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints, that's you, that's all Christians, and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. All right? So I want you to get this image in your head because it's being painted for us. And it was also painted by the prophet Jeremiah and the prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament. The same image of a two-ton millstone being tied around someone's neck and thrown into the sea was the illustration of what would eventually happen to ancient Babylon and ancient Tyre. And this is exactly what is being portrayed for us here of Babylon the Great, all of it, right? And the image here is that, that they were destined to sink into oblivion and that their end would be sudden and dramatic. And so Jesus also made reference to this when he gathered children to him and he said... Right? He's talking about if anyone were to lead these little ones astray. Right? Remember this? Maybe not? Look at Luke 17, verse 1 through 2. This is what it says. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. Babylon. Citizens of Babylon. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. You see, he's drawing on all these pictures. Now you're seeing it's all, I hope, it's connecting dots. This is a picture that Babylon is the great seductress of the children of God. And she is here getting what she deserves from a very righteous daddy. That's what we're seeing. Verse 22, and the sound of harpists and musicians of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more because she's sunk. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth and all nations were deceived by your sorcery, your trickery, your witchcraft, your seductions. This world celebrates the pursuit of all that which is dust. It's as though the elites of this world are under a deceptive, self-reliant spell. But not you. Let it not be you. Verse 24, and in her was found, again, here is the culpability. In her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. She's responsible for it all. The blood of all the prophets in the Old Testament and the saints of the New Testament and even the blood of every murder on earth is traced and tracked back directly to the great prostitute. And the point here is that her destruction is just and it's good and it's worthy of rejoicing. In fact, we're told in verse 20 that we should rejoice over the destruction of Babylon the Great. Wait a minute. (laughs) That gets a little difficult, right? Like, we... We should be rejoicing over this, like, is that even Christian? Like, shouldn't we be a little bit sad? And after all, like, this involves actual people made in the image of God. Doesn't it? Maybe this is that kind of, like, keros rejoicing, right? Maybe it's, it's like, like, it's a difficult scenario, but we can trust in the, him in the end that God's going to make it all right, Right? 
Is that what, if we can trust in the Lord, we can hold steady to the joy of Christ who's going to make all things in the end right. Like that's, maybe that's it. Nope. This is him making things right. This is him making things right. This is the end. This is justice, and it's very good. And the term for rejoice here isn't kairos. It's euphreno. It's the euphoric. It's that kick your shoes off and get your mind right and celebrate kind of rejoicing. It's that euphoric, euphreno rejoicing. You know why? Because evil has gotten what it deserves, and God is good. That's what we're seeing. Now, it's really important to get this. This is not gloating, okay? And, and this is not what we should hope for people because on this side of that action, our desire is that all are saved, and it's the same for the Lord. On this side, we don't hope for people's destruction, right? We pray for their salvation, and we sacrifice, and we do what all that it takes to bring people into the kingdom of grace, to go from the prostitute to the bride of Christ, because that's all of us. That's all of our situation. On this side, we don't hope for that destruction. I mean, we do have hope that that will come, but we don't look at an individual and say, I can't wait for you to die. We pray for their salvation. Amen? But in, on this side of it, when God does it, we rejoice. Euphreno. But again, it's not gloating. That's what the world does. Because gloating is bragging and boasting in themselves. We don't boast in ourselves. We boast in the Lord. What we do is worship. Like earlier I gave, earlier I gave you a few examples of how kairos rejoicing, kairos rejoicing is used in the New Testament, right? Remember, it's that steady, anchored, enduring joy in Christ that we take hold of in a world that's filled with injustice. Well, now I want to give you a couple of examples of this other form of rejoicing, like this euphreno rejoicing, right? Like remember, kairos is used 77 times in the New Testament, but euphreno is only used 16 times, and it's used by both believers and unbelievers, Right? Whenever unbelievers euphreno or rejoice, it's a rejoicing in the work of their own hands. I told you that. In the, their independence, their self-reliance. It's the indulgence in their own glory. But when believers euphreno, it's always a response to the goodness and glory of God and his grace and his salvation and his redemption. So remember that. Now, look at Luke 16, verse 19. Jesus told this parable of a rich man and Lazarus, and he introduces the parable saying this in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who euphranoed sumptuously every day. You see this? He's glorying in all that he has. Or in Acts 7, 41, when Peter speaks of how the Israelites worshipped idols in the desert, saying, verse 41, and they made a calf in those days and they offered a sacrifice to the idol and were euphranoing rejoicing in the works of their hands. You see this? And then Jesus really spells it out in the parable in Luke 12 about a rich fool. Somebody asks Jesus to tell his brother to divide his inheritance with him. He's like, Jesus, tell him to give me my money. It's causing tension between him and his brother, clearly. Money's never done that for any of you, though, right? Jesus responds by saying this. Verse 15 of Luke 12. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. 
And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I'll store my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and euphreno. That's directly contrasted with the Euphreno at the end of the days. Just like the kings and the merchants who had bought into the seductions of Babylon, they all rejoice in their own self-reliance. That's the goal of the world. It's what they're after. This is the spell. This is the sorcery of Babylon. Verse 20, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you suddenly. And the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So what's the point? Rejoice in the Lord, not in the things of this world. If your hope is in the Lord, then when the things of this world fade, your joy won't. In the very next sentence, Jesus then turns to his disciples and he tells them not to be anxious about their lives. Why? Because they have a good father. He tells them that the unbelieving world chases after that illusion of security, which is what it is. It's just an illusion. But we are to be different. We are to seek first his kingdom, not the kingdoms of this world. He tells us to seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and he promises that our very good and faithful Father in heaven will add all those other things to us. And then he makes one of the most precious statements in the whole Bible. This is where our middle child, Adriel, gets her name. Luke 12, 32. Fear not, little flock, for it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This is our hope. This is where our keros comes from. This is what we will one day euphranos in as he gives us that kingdom, right? This is where our true undefiled security is. This is our joy. This is what will one day cry out in that euphoric praise of joy and thanksgiving and praise. This is where our joy comes from even now. This is true security. First Peter, first one, three through four. We got some scripture today. I'm wrapping it up, I promise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So as Jesus said in Matthew 6, verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I'm driving this thing home, but I feel like we have to because we live in a society that is highly seduced by Babylon the Great and self-reliance and self-aggrandizement, and self-worship. As Jesus said, you can't serve both God and money. The Lord is my security. The Lord is my strength. The Lord is my shepherd. I trust in him. I'll not fear, for it's his good pleasure to give me the kingdom. So I'll trust him. I'll follow him. I'll look to him. And I'll know that even if I fail or when I fail and fall or falter, goodness and mercy will chase me down and bring me back because he's that good. 
And so on this side of heaven, even as Babylon rages, we lean into his goodness and his grace and we rejoice in that keros joy with the expectation of one day rejoicing in that euphreno celebration after our deliverance. Not in a way of gloating, because we can't boast in ourselves. We've done nothing. That's the point. It's all thanksgiving. It's all rejoicing in him. It's literally boasting in the Lord and in what he's done. I'm going to close with this. We got one more place that I want to ex- show you where euphreno is used. That euphoric expression of joy and celebration. It's actually used twice in the parable of the prodigal son. Luke 15, verse 23 through 24. This is a parable that Jesus tells. This is the father speaking who is a, a picture of God. And he says, bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and euphreno and celebrate. For this my son was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. And they began to again, euphreno. The prodigal son isn't boastful at this. (laughs) Like, he's not gloating like, yeah, you stupid pigs. I'm done with all that. Remember, he was over here eating from the trough of pigs. He's not gloating over them like, oh, yeah, I'm done with that. I'm so great. I repented. No, he's like thankful. He's, he's, he's really understanding what it finally means to simply be a beloved son, not because of anything he's done, but because of who he is in Christ. This is my hope for all of us. This is what causes our hearts to burst in Euphreno and lean into Kairos and either way it's a rejoicing and he does it along with his father as he's been delivered from the wicked seductions of the world let's pray God we thank you for the hope that we have and our identity in you we thank you that the goodness and mercy of God chases us down follows us runs after us God that even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death that we can fear no evil because you're with us that we are just simply sheep, but you are a really good shepherd. God, I pray that that would give our hearts rest and that you would give us just an insatiable thirst to draw near to you in all circumstances and to rest in your sovereign grace. God, forgive us for those moments where we get tight, hold tightly to this world and and, and when anxieties arise, God, deliver us from those things, Lord as we look forward to that ultimate day of deliverance, Lord. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.